Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to uh, Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. The podcast where we try and delve a little deeply, reflect on some of the assumptions and orthodoxies around British politics which become fashionable without being really very much probed and chat to various people who I bump into during the week. This week we've got a great uh, conversation with the legendary Observer columnist uh, William Keegan. We met on another sunny morning for a cup of coffee and he reflects on Brexit in particular and he can of course contextualise Brexit because he's covered and written about all the turbulent events of British politics over the last three or four or five decades. So we'll hear from him, he knows all the chancellors as well, he's been good mates with quite a few of them. But before then, I ended up on uh, Saturday, that lovely glorious day with a cup final on and everything else, at a Labour economic conference in London. Uh, my heart sunk, really, to be honest, when uh, this prospect arose, because I was had to interview John McDonnell for a programme I'm doing for Radio 4 on Jeremy Corbyn, and I'll talk about that programme as it's scheduled to be broadcast. Anyway, I got the message that uh, John McDonnell was available on Saturday, Saturday lunchtime, uh, during a break in this economic conference, and I wanted to be doing the park run, the 5k park run in this great weather, and then maybe meet up with the lads, you know, the lads to watch the cup final. Instead, I ended up at this economic conference uh, on this sunny day in a windowless uh, lecture theatre. And I'm really pleased I went, because I went, I thought if I'm going to interview him, I might as well go to the conference. And the reason I'm pleased I went was that it did, I said at the beginning, you know, sometimes in this podcast, I want to probe some of the assumptions and orthodoxies that we carry with us. We, I suppose, I mean, journalists, some politicians, actually. And I was quite impressed with this conference. And it did, I think, challenge a series of assumptions that um, are often uh, weighing down, certainly journalists, but some politicians too, as they perceive and shape perceptions about the Corbyn Macdonald leadership. It was packed, this conference, on a sunny Saturday. Um, Many other people much more thrilled to be there than I thought I was going to be. And I was impressed by the tone of the conference. It was serious. It was about policy. And the assumptions it, it kind of challenged were these. Quite often you read that, above all, Corbyn Macdonnell, the left in inverted commas, are more interested in getting control of the Labour Party than winning power. 
This is nonsense. I've always suspected it was nonsense, but this event confirmed that. It's nonsense partly because every Labour leadership is obsessed with getting hold of the levers of the Labour Party. Who can blame them? It's an unleadable party. Blair and Brown were obsessed with gaining control of the Labour Party and largely succeeded. And unsurprisingly, not least after coups, a second leadership contest, this lot are obsessed with getting control of the levers of the Labour Party. So that's not surprising and it's entirely part of a pattern. Process in politics is viewed with great subjectivity. If you approve of leaders, you fully support them as they seize control. If you disapprove, you kind of say this is outrageous, but they all do it. But they are also serious about winning power. And you don't give up a sunny Saturday. Sorry to go on about the sunny Saturday, but it was a beautiful day. Uh, You don't give up these days to focus on policy development in this way and, and in ways that were serious if you weren't deadly intent on trying to win and secure power and get into government. And people like John McDonnell, you know, indeed Corbyn himself, well into their 60s, they have one chance and they know it. And it's the next election, whenever that is. The second orthodoxy that this conference challenged was that these uh, left-wingers only like hearing people who agree with them. They're not exposed to dissenting views. This, again, when you step back and think about it, is also a nonsense because the British media alone ensures that a whole range of dissenting views uh, get to them. Um, and, and, of course, they all read this stuff. They might pretend only to read the Morning Star or whatever. It's not true. But... This conference was not an echo chamber. It was organised by John McDonnell, and uh, the keynote speaker was Adair Turner, the former Director General of the CBI. And although he is a radical, as he joked, he's absolutely an establishment radical, and uh, he was putting forward a whole series of proposals that challenged this audience. Yes, they were progressive, but he outlined the enormity of the difficulties facing any government in this globalised world. He pointed out, for example, that although he supported tax rises, indeed he thought they were absolutely essential, to go down the route of Hollande in France of a tax on the wealthy almost alone as a sort of totemic moment was a disaster, both politically and in terms of the money it raised. And he advocated a wider range of tax rises rather than a sort of totemic one, which might be easy to sell in the first place. He pointed out how the big global companies now employ a tiny number of people. One of the biggest differences compared with earlier eras where, say, car manufacturers were heavy, heavy employers. And that inequality in its modern manifestation was impossibly challenging, almost impossibly. He came up with some propositions. McDonnell on the platform took uh, notes and nodded at times, and, and similarly Corbyn too. And at times, uh, Dare Turner said, look, you won't want me necessarily to hear this bit, but here it is. And and it was stimulating. And it was a, a good choice of speaker and proof that they don't just want to hear everyone 
who starts by agreeing with them. The third assumption or orthodoxy that I read all the time is that this lot are stuck in the 1970s, that they haven't changed their views or their outlook on the world, and it's too late to do that now. That too is just not true. Um, they might have the same basic convictions, and many people might disagree with them within the Labour Party and beyond. But it's not true to say that they sit there reciting mantras from the 1970s. The agenda for this conference did look at state ownership, but modern forms of ownership, I don't think any of them are seeking to resurrect the nationalised models from the 60s and 70s that were dismantled in the 80s. And they do so now in a completely different context where railway companies are increasingly discredited and one, of course, famously was taken under uh, nationalisation only the other day, although the government, rather like the new Labour era, can't utter that word. So they're looking at new forms. Now, whether they work or not, uh, we'll have to wait and see in terms of their weightiness and credibility. But it's not just true to say they're resurrecting policies in their precise form from the 70s. They're looking at new forms of robust devolution. Preston is often cited as uh, one model for this. They are reflecting too on how employees can have a greater input into the companies they work for. Now, as Adair Turner pointed out, many of these ideas, while good in theory, are difficult in a global economy where if you apply certain regulations to British companies and they don't apply globally, uh, the British companies become stifled in this globalised economy. So there are huge challenges, but it is not true to say that they are unaware of those challenges or are working on some insane assumption that we're still in the 1970s. Uh, you know, I don't know anyone who really thinks that, but that's what you read all the time. Finally, the relationship between Corbyn and McDonnell, when you see them working together on a stage or behind the scenes, is a formidable one. You sometimes read all the attentions between them over the anti-Semitism, furore or whatever. This is a partnership that will endure. You can see there the friendship, the sense of mutual loyalty and mutual admiration. We could explore who has more power over the other, etc., as we tend to do with these duos, but this one isn't going to implode. Uh, it reminds me they're entirely different personalities, obviously, but it reminds me a bit seeing those two together of the Cameron-Osborne relationship, which you knew was going to endure based on friendship and to some extent, shared ideas. So those are kind of some of the thoughts I took away from this conference, which I hadn't really wanted to go to and was pleased I did. That doesn't mean that there is some primrose path to power, obviously, for these people who have suddenly discovered power at the end of their careers, power as in leading a national party. But I think the story, instead of demonising Corbyn MacDonald and the so-called hard left, a term which doesn't really tell us anything at all. There is a much more interesting saga. And before I say what it is, I think it's often the case that 
we miss the interesting story because we assume there's something else much more dramatic to reflect on. In, in the new Labour era, the focus of much of the media, especially the BBC, was spin and control freakery. Ironic now, considering so many complain that uh, Corbyn and Macdonald have taken over the Labour Party with a control freakiness. Now, those two issues were relatively minor. Historians will look back on the New Labour era and explore many things. I suspect they will be relatively small items. There was this much more interesting story in the New Labour era of a group of people who had been out of power for 18 years of pretty right-wing government coming in with a landslide and yet being nervous and tentative about the degree of change they sought to bring about. And there were two figures at the very top, a near duopoly, uh, to which others had to dance. And that was the interesting story, this control freak. Panorama did four programmes on spin or control freakery. And the BBC obsession in that period was one of the reasons they got into trouble with the whole Andrew Gilligan business, which I'm certainly not going to reflect on now. But it seems to me the interesting story about Corbyn and Macdonald and the wider changes that have taken place is, first of all, uh, whether a duo can adapt, having had the luxury of purity of conviction as backbenchers, to the demands of leadership, which inevitably involves some twisting and turning and expediency. And yet in an era, they have to do all that, where clearly there is appetite for radical verve and purity. And when you see the twists and turns over Brexit and one or two other things, you can see this is going to be very, very challenging for people inexperienced at that level of um, politics. And the other one is this mass membership party that's been created. The anti-Semitism saga was uh, immediately became, oh, it's Corbyn, he's a disaster, but then maybe he's not anti-Semitic, but he isn't controlling it. It's partly about how you police a mass membership party. If we regard parties as a good thing, and therefore that we want people to join them, Presumably, it's a good thing that the Labour Party has got all the, the, these members. Now, some people might not like these members. So how do you control and police who joins? And that's a huge issue. If they were to get into government, uh, who knows how they would control all of that? And indeed, in the build-up to whenever the next election comes. So anyway, it was interesting. Now, someone who in journalism always contextualises and always doesn't uh, follow orthodoxies because it's the in thing to do uh, when he writes a column, is uh, William Keegan. He's been writing for The Observer for many decades now. His first uh, book was uh, amidst the economic crises of the late 1970s, that Labour government, the winter of discontent, the Lib Lab pact, knife-edge commons votes, and in the end, the Labour government being defeated on a vote of um, confidence in the House of Commons, uh, and Callaghan left, and they were out for 18 years. His second book was on, uh, there was something called, it was in 1981 it was published, Mrs Thatcher's Economic Experiment, and he had already grasped the contours of the economic radicalism 
that was to develop in the years that followed and some of the many downsides of that era. But what makes him interesting is that as well as being a really forensic critic, say, of the 1980s economic policies, because of his personality, he remained good friends with Nigel Lawson, the Chancellor who he criticised regularly in his columns, and subsequent chancellors and previous chancellors. So he's known the lot. But at the moment, he's focusing forensically and wittily on Brexit and indeed with a degree of alarm. And that's when we had our coffee over a sunny morning. I asked him, first of all, to put Brexit into context. He has, he's covered all these other tempestuous political dramas and economic dramas that erupt in the United Kingdom. Where does he place Brexit in the sequence of political economic storms that have erupted around the UK? That's where we began our conversation. William King, could I begin by asking, you wrote a book in the late 70s, a period of great economic and political turbulence. You then wrote one on the early Thatcher economic experiment, which was wonderfully vivid and funny at times. Put into context to us Brexit, do you sense that this is more combustible and significant than those two very turbulent periods you were writing about? Yes, yes, I really do. And uh, the, it's, I think it's the biggest crisis I've, I've covered in, you know, in 50 years of journalism because so, there is so much at stake. The, um, I mean, the, I thought the Thatcher period was pretty bad. I coined the word sadomonetarism for what was going on. There was that terrible recession and unemployment went up to over three million by the mid mid eighties, and um, we'd had the oil crisis in the seventies, which was not very good news. There was all the minor stuff. Then there was the ERM episode. But this, uh, they are trying to unscramble an omelette that's been produced in, in forty-five years. You know, and and the thing is that we are now part of the European economy. Um, nearly half our industry is actually foreign-owned. I don't know whether the Brexit has realised that. And we depend heavily on the immigration that has been filling all sorts of gaps in our in our economy. Industry depends on just-in-time arrangements whereby there are no problems at the customs. Let me give you an example. If the Keegan family's dishwasher goes wrong, you ring up the firm and they say, right, we'll get the part from Dusseldorf and it'll be, Dusseldorf and it'll be there in two days. You know, and and it's, it, when they use the word frictionless, they mean it. And these warnings about um, uh, lorries piling up at ports and things coming to a standstill are, are not scare stories. When you were writing about the early Thatcher, Geoffrey Howe period, and then you wrote about the Nigel Lawson late 80s period, you had a pretty clear sense then about how things might go wrong. Why were you so clear? Because a lot of people will continue to regard that as an experiment that worked. As you wrote your columns and your books in the 80s, you took a very different view. Yes, well, I was lucky enough to be educated um, in economics at Cambridge, which is a very Keynesian place. And um, the essence of Keynesian economics was summed up by Dennis Healy once. He said, if you're in a hole, don't dig deeper. And I just think that huge macroeconomic policy mistakes were made. 
And the, 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 the worship of Mrs. Thatcher was meant to be controlling inflation. She came in when inflation was 10%, having been, as you know, something like 26% in 1975, but it had come down. And she introduced some wild measures which took inflation up to 20% the following year. And getting back from that was going to be very difficult. And the exchange rate was, was allowed to rise and rise and rise. It was considered a matter of um, you know, macho strength, but it got to the stage where people like the chairman of ICI were going to number 10 and saying, do you want us to remain in, in business in Britain because things are so bad? And then there were policy shifts. But it was a kind of roller coaster, the Thatcher period. And then uh, Nigel Lawson, who had actually been a champion of the monetarist doctrine, which didn't work, then looked for a new panacea, and that was um, joining the exchange rate mechanism, which he actually failed to do. But when it was done, when Mrs. Thatcher was worn down, it was the wrong policy at the wrong time, for the wrong reasons, and they wanted to ally, ally themselves to German inflation. But German inflation, they didn't seem to notice that Germany had been unified and that the cost of integrating East Germany into Greater Germany was going to be a, quite an infl inflationary period. Given that you had a, a sense of what might happen when you wrote your book, it was Mrs. Thatcher's Experiment, was it called? Yes, I think it was called Mrs. Thatcher's Economic Experiment. Yeah, yeah. which I think you wrote in 81? Yes, yes. So it's really early on in the whole thing. Put on your sort of prophetic spectacles now. What is going to happen with Brexit? Now, obviously, on one level, it's a ridiculous question because Theresa May doesn't know what's going to happen with Brexit, nor does the rest of the European Union. I know you hope it doesn't happen, but, but what do you think will happen? Well, Steve, as you know, I'm fond of quoting um, the character C.J. in Reginald Perrin. I didn't get where I am today, <laughs> making wild forecasts. But that said, obviously I hope that uh, somehow or other people will see sense, but I worry that we, we are heading for the cliff and there could be some gigantic crisis. And I would like to distinguish between... There was a, there's a, a notable um, political scientist, uh, David Runciman, who wrote recently in the London Review of Books that um, he, he argued against people like me who say they're ought to be it was such a narrow vote and people didn't know and it, it it ought to change and he said that would cause serious trouble i think the, the serious trouble would be as nothing to compare with what happened if, if this country came to a halt over a, a sudden crash landing and i get the impression that the um the, the hard brexiters don't really care they seem to be revolutionaries it's all you know it's all evocative of early 20th century russia they're revolutionaries without a proper plan you know some of those revolutionaries quite well. I and mean, one of the interesting things about uh, you as a columnist is you can be critical of policy but know the key figures well. Nigel Lawson being a classic example. Now a Brexiteer, you were critical of his policies when he was Chancellor. But you you are good friends with him, aren't you? And, and, and talk about these things. Yes, a lot of people find this unlikely because the combination of his being a Brexiter and also his, um, his stand on global warming has made him very unpopular. But he loves that. I mean, the journalist Christopher Files once said Nigel would cross the road to pick a fight. He loves being uh, perverse and um, I think he's being very perverse. For instance, he lives um, most of the time in France, down there in, in Gascony. I mean, I, I've been there, I've, I've, I've seen the place, and um, he lives a very happy life there. I mean, it's a sort of paradox, but yet he, he, he argues that we should leave. We were both on a panel a few years ago, um, which I think was round about the time we may have been interviewed by you as well for, for, for a radio programme. 
And, I remember uh, that's the first time I realised how well you got on, <laughs> even though you disagreed yeah. about most things. And we both talked to a, to a group of, they were called, was it the three R's? It's a group of insolvency lawyers and accountants and um, bigwigs in the city. And this took place in Portugal. And um, we, we agreed to disagree. This was before the referendum. We, we had a very good-natured uh, discussion. But what seemed to interest most people, we, what we both realised was that these very high-powered, uh, all highly paid people, they came up to us that they hadn't realised the history of why we had joined the European Union, that the connection with never wanting a war again. Uh, and, they, they, and that's what we were thanked for, more than our differences on whether, you know, it, it, it was quite remarkable. Yeah. But we just, and also, don't forget that um, he and I are both old Financial Times people, and there's a sort of um, camaraderie there. Right. And right. I, I can give you an example. There were times on the Observer when my job was seriously threatened because the proprietors didn't like what I was writing, and there were directors uh, trying to get me fired. This was in the 80s. In the 80s. Yeah. And one day, um, Nigel came to lunch at the Observer, and um, uh, one of the directors. I said, well, Chancellor, we're always criticising you. What have you got to say about us? And I was sitting next to Tony Howard, who was then our deputy editor, and he said, he sort of dug me on the shoulder and said, this is it. And Lawson said, I know what you're referring to. He said, I read his column. I don't always agree with it. And then he said, but I would not be without it. Which wasn't bad, considering I was pillorying him week after yeah, week. Yeah, and, and to his great credit, actually. Yeah, to his great yeah, credit. Yeah. Well, if he some, likes debate, as yeah, you he say. Like, <clears throat> but and the, 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 one of the things that increasingly intrigued me is how is this personality business. So how you can get on... There are some people you disagree with that you can't stand, and there are people you disagree with and you get on very well. Similarly, there are people you agree with that you don't. You, you, know, you can't bear the company. And it so happens that we, you know, we are old friends. You, you have known a lot of uh, the recent chancellors, um, and I know you knew very well until the end of his life, uh, Dennis Healy. In yes. fact, I think you took Ed Balls to meet Dennis Healy at his house in Sussex because Healy was a bit of a hero for Ed Balls. Yes, so, yes. What, what? yes I did that. It, it was interesting. It was it was kind of flattering, but also good for them that, that they wanted to, to to meet people like Dennis. But that, there's a funny story about that. They got on famously. But Dennis, this is Ed Balls and Dennis. Ed, Ed Balls and Dennis. And Dennis, Dennis house, got, yeah, that's right, down in Sussex. Yeah. And the first thing Dennis said, he said to Ed, he said, "Of course, I know your wife." And this, it was thrown a bit by this. And of course, uh, I think Yvette Cooper, when a journalist on the Independent, had interviewed Dennis. Anyway, we had a very good, a very good session. And I had assumed that this was all background, you know, sort of off the record, me, me helping um, Ed out and Dennis liking to be in touch with the younger generation. So when we got, Ed and I got on the train coming back, we bought some wine at the station, had a few sandwiches, and he was suddenly on the phone. And I said, Ed, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just um, using uh, whatever it was for social media. I'm just letting people know that I've met Dennis Healy with you. I said, oh, it's now on the record. <laughs> he tweeted it, <laughs> He tweeted it. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, tweeted that's right, it. he tweeted yeah. it. Yeah. What was... Dennis Healy like as a as a chancellor and a a person you got to know he was very very intelligent he was definitely I mean Ian Aitken used to say he was he was quite a bruiser he was very intelligent he um, was a, a brilliant defense secretary from 64 to 70 both Wilson governments in fact he claimed to me that um, we quite rightly Harold Wilson is given credit for not sending a soldier to Vietnam, but Dennis Healy said that he was um, firmly, you know, supporting him on that. But as Chancellor, he came in at the most impossible time. It was a nightmare. You know, it was a nightmare to be Chancellor. And oddly enough, he'd always wanted to be Foreign Secretary, which he never was. Yeah. But he picked up the ball, and he had a difficult time 
And he, although a brilliant man, he didn't actually, you know, he wasn't as au fait with economics as, as some, of the, some of the Treasury people, but he got on well with them. And I think um, his, his great achievement was to help uh, Jim Callaghan to keep the cabinet together during that awfully difficult time, the IMF negotiations of 1976. Yeah. So his dying big spending day. cuts had yeah. to be imposed. But big spending cuts, and it cuts, and it was really, you know, the, the government could have fallen. It was really very difficult. One of the interesting aspects of, of that is that he never forgave the Treasury forecasters. <clears throat> he was convinced to his dying day that if only the forecasts had been better, we wouldn't have had to go to the IMF and suffered that humiliation. And he goes down in history as the, the chance to return back at the airport to from, speak at the Labour Party where he had suffered the humiliation of having to speak from the floor. But he wasn't beyond giving, giving a, you know, a, a fairly public V-sign to people who treated him like that. He told me one of his proudest moments was just beating... Tony Benn to the deputy leadership in the early 80s, just by a hair's Less than 1% Less than in 1981. And he was really proud of that. He also regretted not having, he, he always used to say he didn't want to be Prime Minister, he, always, he, he regretted not trying harder. And there, you were just up against this sort of bullying aspect of him. He was quite good at, um, he didn't suffer fools gladly, <laughs> to put it mildly. And he showed it. And he showed it, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and... Uh, you, you knew and of course still know Gordon Brown yes. from his long period yeah, in, uh, as yeah. Chancellor and as Prime Minister yeah. and, and, mm-hmm. and you still speak to him regularly. I yes, think. I had, uh, saw him the other day, yes, yes. And um, and he's a man whose public image is quite different from the, from the real person. I mean, the irony was he, he always wanted to be Prime Minister and then he just didn't realise, although, you know, he, just how difficult it was. He was telling me the other day that every issue ends up with the Prime Minister. Rather like, um, you know, was it Truman, um, the buck stops here. Yeah. It was notorious by the Prime Minister that he, there was multitasking was difficult for him. He's a brilliant Chancellor, in my opinion. And I also believe that um, yeah, one day history will realise, I mean, I've written a book about this, but I don't think he's yet had the proper credit for it, that he, he was very important in, as he rather misguidedly called, uh, saving the world <laughs> with the, the G20, the, the Group of 20 um, react, concerted reaction in um, April 2009, yes. It was huge. It was giving... World trade was, was falling at about 20% per annum. So they, they did a lot for world trade credit. They had big fiscal boost, monetary um, stabilisation, and that was fantastic. His great regret, and he mentioned this to me again the other day, was that as soon as um, you know, he lost the election, in came the, the coalition, and they reversed... They introduced austerity far too... Uh, you know, well, they, I don't think they should have introduced it at all, nor does um, Gordon, and he feels very bitter about that. Yeah, it is remarkable that period after the financial crash when he was obviously the person to sort this one out from the UK perspective with all his experience, context, and yet there were attempted coups against him by people who would have been wholly unsuitable to get that job. Politics was crazy then. It It might be now, but it was then. Yeah, it it, it was. um, So although people tend to write off his premiership, which was from, what, from uh, the summer of 2007. The thing is that he had spent nine years as chairman of the the International Monetary Fund's key political committee. His contacts were sensational, and he was respected by by everybody, and that mattered, getting a consensus to to stop the rot in the world crisis, and it was a, you know, it was a huge crisis. What we can, I think, all agree on in respect to the current Chancellor, Philip Hammond, is that although he's in an interesting 
position. He's not really as interesting a public figure as Healy, Lawson, Gordon Brown, and indeed George Osborne, actually, yeah. who I know yeah. you are a big critic <laughs> of. But 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 he is he is a more interesting figure than uh, Philip Hammond is sort of. Not a figure of great fascination, really, is he? No, 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 he isn't. I mean, he's um, well. I, I don't want to be some of my best friends are accountants, but you know, he, he just everybody's image of an accountant, and he's very nice to meet. meet. I don't know him terribly well, but he, he's very pleasant to meet. Very guarded, and um, you do get an occasional smile from him. I remember. I saw him. Is he, in your view, on? the right side of this Brexit debate, is he putting quite a lot of internal pressure, not for what you want, which is for us to stay in, but for the softest of all possible Brexit? Yes, he is. And I think he would actually like to stay in, but he's, the, he's, he thinks that um, the past has been sold and you've just got to minimise the, the damage. And, and he's, from that point of view, he's absolutely at one with the Treasury. Now, let me, I mean, very pertinent to this is the fact that throughout my career, the Treasury has been suspicious of most things European. But when it comes to the crunch, the Treasury knows where the country's bread is buttered and it, they are absolutely 100% against Brexit. And, he, and so they got the, and, and you know, he can't say it in public. The other, I, I saw him the other day at some function and I, I said to him, I'm, I'm writing the column you can't write and he, I just about got a smile from him. <laughs> You're also uh, very good friends with someone who is now publicly speaking out, which is the former permanent secretary, Sir Nick McPherson, yes. who now tweets quite regularly with his comments on so Brexit. And so, so I understand. <laughs> I, don't, I only see them when they report in the FT. Or, or he sends me, yeah. Yeah, but you, that's the other side, isn't it? You, you have good contacts at the very top of the civil service wing of the mm. Treasury. and mm-hmm. Of course, you worked in the Bank of England yes. in the 1970s yes. and yes. Uh, speak to a lot of the people there. Yes, that, yeah, that, that was very important for me. I enjoyed that period. And for the financial science, I used to write sentences like the Bank of England thinks this. But once I got to the bank and realised how much discussion was, I, I, I said I'd never use that again because there are far too many views in the bank. But I met lots of interesting officials and they trusted me not to... Uh, reveal secrets because it was at the time when the IMF negotiations were going on and everybody was obsessed with the public sector borrowing figures and the money that was being drained from the country and uh, so I I had access to to those and I remember it was quite embarrassing because one day one of my closest friends in journalism took me out desperately anxious to to get a scoop out of me and I I just I said sorry you know I'm working for the Bank of England at the moment (laughs) It's like when Andrew Donis went into number 10 and I remember him saying to me such good stories Mm. and of course you can't use any of them No, no, no Just finally the Bank of England, you mentioned you worked there. Mark Carney, he's he's going to leave soon and go off to Canada. Do you think he might become a bit demob happy? And uh, he's hinted publicly at some of his worries about Brexit. Do you sense that could become a bit louder or do you think he'll remain very discreet to, 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 to the very end? Well, I, I hope so. He's, one has watched him be very cautious at first. And you know, like anybody in that position, he's... Criticise again. People talk. The personality cult is such that, it, that they would write Carney, but he does have this committee. Of course, of and, course. Um, and it turns out that one of his deputies has got into a spot of bother recently with a, oh, a, a, a the term menopause. A, yes, yes, which yes. Uh, which is a, not not a very wise thing to say. But anyway, I mean, I've got mixed views about him. I think that um, 
the, the forward guidance, uh, you know, trying to let people know roughly what would happen in advance, that was a bit of an own goal because the, the fact of the matter is they don't know what's, much, what's going to happen in advance. And I started calling it backward guidance <laughs> and sideways guidance as well. But then, on the big issue, I think on the, um, the, the crisis, one of the reasons why, I mean, I thought that, um, that George Osborne uh, was exaggerated too much in the, during the referendum campaign because the disaster was medium and long term, not, not immediate. But one of the reasons why it wasn't such a disaster was that the bank took very strong action to prop the economy up. And, and you, of course, you did, get the, you did get the collapse of the pound. And by the way, the Brexiters are saying now the pound's recovering. It, it's not the, what's really been happening is that the dollar in the, over a year has been devalued by 10%. So it's, it looks as though it, so the dollar has been devalued, but we, the pound is still very low against the euro, as I discovered the other day when I went off to Vienna for a few days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, William Keegan, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was the great uh, William Keegan uh, reflecting on the Chancellor, as he's known, and, of course, on, on Brexit, this huge story of uncertain outcome. It's the box set where no one knows the end and no doubt there will be developments during the week which we can reflect on next week. But that's all for now. Oh, I should say, by the way, that tickets are on sale for the Politics Festival at King's Place in June, which I'm organising with my friend and colleague Ian Birrell and, of course, with King's Place and anyone who's anyone in politics, is rolling up. And there's going to be loads of music and comedy as well. It will be a fantastic weekend. It opens with uh, John Major uh, on the Friday, but there are many other big names on that Friday and, of course, on the Saturday and Sunday. And tickets for my live Edinburgh show at the Edinburgh Festival are now on sale. I can exclusively reveal they've only just come on sale this week. So if you go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival website, you can book up for Rock and Roll Politics Live, where we can be in a room together and you don't just have to listen to me, although you have to do a bit of that. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Thanks to uh, Gareth Jones, who's helped me put these podcasts together. Uh, Much appreciated. And thank you all for listening. Do subscribe and download for next week's. Thank you. Thank you.